anything to you, but you're still good. It's who you are. You are a good God over us. And so we can come boldly into your presence. Yes, you are our king today. You are our master. You are our Lord. But you're also our father. And you love us. And God, we're not deserving of your love in any way. There's nothing that we've done that, that in any way warrants the love that you have for us. But you still love us. And so we want to just praise you today for who you are. We want to praise you for that attribute of who you are. You are good. You are goodness personified. Even when we don't understand the decisions you make, God, even when we don't understand what you allow, you're still good. It's our understanding that is bad, but you are good. And so, God, we know that we can come boldly, and, God, we can find whatever help we need from you. There's no other source there's no other wellspring of blessing. It's you. And today we declare that we don't want any other source. We don't want any other blessing. We don't want any other way. We don't want any other path. We don't want any other king over us. You are the only king that we want, and that's forever and ever. Amen. And so, God, today I pray that you would have your will and your way in this service. God, we're not here just to do an hour of time, just to mark the time. We're not here just to check a box and say we've got that done for the week. No, God, we're here to get something from you that we could not get from anyone else. And, God, we believe that when we come together as a family, there is something special that happens. And God, we believe that when all your children, when all your kids come together, it moves your heart. And so today we're seeking something, God. We're seeking something more. We're seeking something that maybe we have not ever experienced or maybe we've not experienced in a while. We're seeking a move from you. Would you give it to us, Lord? We're not worthy. We know we're not worthy. But would you give it to us anyway? just out of your grace and out of your mercy. God, I want to praise you this morning for at least four people in this church who the doctors were thinking they had cancer, and God, we've prayed over them, and the doctors are saying there's no cancer present. We don't believe that's a coincidence. We don't believe that that's the way it would have been without prayer. We believe you did something. God, as I go back for my six-month blood test tomorrow, God, we're going to trust that that's going to come out well. God, we're trusting you. We put all our trust, all our faith in you. You are so good to us. How good are you to us, God? You gave your only son. You gave the very best you had. You didn't hold that back. You didn't hold him back from us. You gave your only son for this this world that's just a speck of dust in the great universe. And God, we're just animated dust. We're just beings that you created out of the, the dirt of the ground. And yet you love us. And so we thank you for Jesus. 
We thank you for the cross today. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are still moving and you are still working. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we're going to ask all of this. Because he's the one that loved us enough to give himself for us. It's in his name we pray and Rushwood said together, amen. You may be seated today. I say that a lot. That's, that's uh, something that I added to my prayer many years ago. Um, was that Jesus is the one who loved us enough to give himself for us. And the man that I got that from was the president of our seminary, Dr. Frank Scurry. He all, all, almost always ended his prayers that way, and that's something I picked up from him. And Dr. Scurry got promoted to heaven this week, and I'm so thankful for his influence in my life and on many other people. If you will, pray for his family. Um, but as I was praying that, I was thinking about him this morning and thinking about the influence this man had. He started out as a pastor, became a seminary president, and just blessed so many of us. And I pray that my life can have the kind of impact that his life had. And I pray that your life has that sort of impact as well. We are going to continue our series, The Bible's Greatest Hits. We're on the last three weeks of that series. I think I told you it's the longest series of the year, and so we've got some really cool things planned to end up this year as far as sermon series and music, and, and I think God has put together some wonderful, wonderful things there. But before we dive in, I want to encourage you on something, if I can, today. Today I know of at least four churches that are planting today, four new churches that are starting. One of them is C4 that was here a few weeks ago and shared with us, so pray for them as they launch today. We're praying that God's going to do amazing things through them in Guilford County. I know of one church that's starting in Boston, Massachusetts, so they're going to need all kinds of prayers. Pray for them. And a couple of churches that are starting in Texas. I know of several churches that are being planted today. And the reason that today is a day that they choose to plant churches is because the summer's over, Labor Day is in the rearview mirror, and it's a great time for building a church or starting a church is this time of year as we move toward the Christmas season. Kids are back in school. People are kind of back into their normal routine. And it's kind of a sacred time of year that God really works in this time of year. And so I said that to say this. I want to encourage you that this is a great time of year for you to invite somebody to church. Summertime, we're busy. Summertime, we're on vacations, all sorts of things going on. I just, just, just a little poll this morning. I, just let me take a quick poll and, and some audience participation. How many of you know somebody, somebody in your circle of friends or family or maybe somebody you work with, somebody within your sphere of influence is the term that I use for that. How many of you have somebody in your sphere of influence that is not a Christian, that doesn't know Jesus? Could you just raise your hand? Okay. And those of you who... Those of you who don't raise, didn't raise your hand on that. You need to expand your sphere of influence then if you have nobody. How many of you, how many of you, and I know some of you, this may be your first time here, and so you have no way of judging things, and so anyway, you guys don't count, but everybody else counts. How many of you think that this church is a church where somebody who doesn't know Jesus could come and they could meet Jesus? How many of you believe that, that we're a church where somebody could meet Jesus Christ for the first time? Well, let's put those two things together. If you have somebody that's in your sphere of influence that doesn't know Jesus, 
And if you believe that this church is a place where they could come and they could meet Jesus, they could experience who he is and their life could be changed, let's put that together. What you should do then is invite them to church. What you should do is invite them to church. Statistics tell us that most people will not go to church on their own. They will not try church for the first time if they're left to their own devices. But if they have a friend... If they have a friend, a family member, somebody they know that would invite them to church, 80% are willing to come to church if a close family friend or, or friend invites them to church. And so that's where you guys come in. I've invited about everybody I've ever known to this church, okay? I've about exhausted all of that. But you guys have people just that the power of our influence right here. If everybody here just brought one person, of course, we'd, have, we'd double in size. If you just invited one person to come to church with you, our church would double in size, the kingdom would grow, this whole area would be impacted, and so I'm going to put it in your lap. I'm going to put it on you. From now till Christmas is a great time to invite somebody new to come and worship with us here. Especially September 29th, we have our Fall Family Fun Fest, as we've already mentioned to you. We don't do that. We, part of why we do that is to bless our congregation and to have a great time together, and we do. I know that there are several people who say that's their favorite time of the year. That's their favorite thing we do as a church, and so I enjoy that day as well. But it's not just for us. It's to give you an excuse to invite somebody to come, experience what this church is about, yes, but more importantly far more importantly than that, to experience Jesus Christ. We have people who have come through this church, experienced Jesus here, come to know him. They've gotten saved. They've gotten baptized. They've gotten on mission, and they're not with us anymore, but they're out there somewhere in another church, maybe another place, maybe another state, and they are a light that is shining in the darkness because of what happened here. And that's far more important than our church growing. The church growing is far more important than our church growing. Okay, so let's take this opportunity. Let's take this opportunity. Hey, I'm with Jason. You guys are a little lethargic today. Just a little lethargic today. So I, I just go ahead and give you warning. You know how I go. I've got two sermons planned, a short one and a long one. If it seems like you're getting it, if it seems like you're getting it and you're with me, then we'll get through it fairly quick. But if it seems like I need to spend a little more time on it, we'll do, do that as well, okay? So it's up to you guys. Are you with me this morning? Okay, all right, that wakes you up. you got to threaten them sometimes. That's, that's just how it works. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you so much for caring about the church and the kingdom and the greatest movement ever, the church of Jesus Christ. The greatest movement ever to grace this world, the greatest movement that ever will grace this world is the church of Jesus Christ. So now let's get into the meat of the sermon. We're talking about the Bible's greatest hits, sections, areas of the Bible that have greatly influenced people, greatly blessed people. All the Bible is, is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. All of it is useful in so many different ways. But there are certain sections that have just kind of grabbed our hearts over the years, certain sections that have really blessed people, certain sections that have just meant a lot to the people of God during the time, during the time of the kingdom. And so we were, are looking at some of those during this series. And this morning I'm going to do something we have not done. We have not done in this series. But I was battling because the book of Romans, the book of Romans is such an influential book. It is so important to the church. It is so important uh, to Christianity that I was trying to pick a verse out of that book that kind of stands out above all the rest. And I'll be honest with you, as I wrestle with that, I just couldn't. 
There's so many. There's so much in Romans that's so rich, so powerful, it's so gospel-centered that to kind of find one verse that was just the key verse or one that stood out above the rest, I just could not do that. So I decided that we would just cover the whole book today. Y'all looking scared right now. Y'all are looking really like, how long did you say this sermon's going to be? Yeah, we're going to cover the whole book, but I, look, it's going to be an overview. I'm going to move pretty fast, as fast as I can on this. I know you guys, if you're saying, oh man, if you're going to pick a book, I wish you would have picked Obadiah or I wish you would have picked Second John because those are real short. I promise you we'll keep it moving today, but I just could not pick one little spot out of this book. This book is so rich, and so I thought, let's try something we've never tried before. If you don't like it, I don't know, we may never try this again. We'll just have to see how it works out. But we're going to look at an overview of the book of Romans because this book has been so powerful in church history. So powerful in church history. It's so powerful in my life, hopefully so powerful in your life. There are three men that I think can think of just right off the top of my head who are great, great men, great figures in the history of the church that were powerfully influenced by the book of Romans. First one is a guy named Augustine, or some people pronounce it Augustine. But he was basically a pagan. He was living his own life. He was living in sin and debauchery, and he just was, he was just, off, uh, just off doing his own thing. And one day he was in the backyard and he heard this little child singing a little song that said, Take up and read. Take up and read. That was the song this little kid was singing. And Augustine thought, I think he's talking about the Bible. I think he's talking about the scriptures. And so he took it up and he actually picked up a a copy of the Bible and started to read. And his eyes fell on a verse in the book of Romans. And from that moment on, he was converted. He became a Christian. And he became one of the greatest figures in early church history because of reading the book of Romans. And then we go on and and many years later, many centuries later, the church had fallen into all sorts of sin and all sorts of selfishness. The church was all about money. The church was all about things other than the gospel, other than God. But there was this monk, and I've been through this with you before. We've talked about the story of Martin Luther, so I won't rehash all of that. But Martin Luther was seeking, how can I be holy before God? How can I be righteous before God? And he struggled with that and struggled with that. And finally, he took up the book of Romans, and he read in there a verse that says, The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And he understood that he could not do it on his own, that it had to be faith in Jesus and faith in what Jesus had done. And so that changed the entire world. He was separated out from the Catholic Church. It started the Protestant Reformation. And literally, reading one verse out of the book of Romans changed not only Luther, but it changed the entire world around Luther. We go a couple of centuries later, and there's a guy named John Wesley. Very sincere, very religious wants to serve God, wants to love God, but he is kind of like Luther. He's struggling. He's falling short. In fact, uh, Wesley is in, in a storm, caught in a storm on a ship, and he's with a group of Christians named the Moravians, called the Moravians. They were missionaries. They went all over the world spreading the gospel. And here's Luther, and he's supposed to be the chaplain of the ship. He is supposed to be basically the representation of God on this ship, I'm sorry, did I say Luther? I meant Wesley. Here's Wesley in this ship, and he is scared to death in this storm, scared to death that if he dies, he does not know what's going to happen. But he looks around, and these Moravian missionaries in the midst of this storm with water coming into the belly of the ship where it looks like they're going to die, they're going to sink, and they're going to meet their end. In the midst of all this, they're singing hymns 
calmly praising Almighty God. And it convicts Wesley that they have something that he does not have. And so he goes on a search for God. And one day on a Sunday evening service, he goes into this place called Aldersgate. Goes into the church at Aldersgate. And they're reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. Now how boring does that sound? Reading the preface of a commentary on a book of the Bible. And yet as they're reading this preface of this commentary on the book of Romans, as he's listening to it, John Wesley finds his heart is strangely warmed. And he does believe in Christ and he knows that God is his father and he knows that he's been saved and he finds that assurance that he's been looking for. And one of the greatest revivals, maybe the greatest revival since the early church, starts through John Wesley. All these men were influenced greatly by the book of Romans. It's a powerful book. It's a powerful book in church history. It's a powerful book in our lives if we let it be. And so today I want to present to you kind of an overview of what the book of Romans is talking about. It's a unique book. It's unique among Paul's letters. Paul had never, at least not as a believer, Paul had never visited the church at Rome. So he did not know these people to whom he was writing. But the Roman church was a mixed ethnicity church. There was a situation in the Roman church. That's a, that's a German word that theologians use, sits. It actually means the situation the situation in this church was Jew versus Gentile. There were Jewish Christians, ethnically Jewish Christians in the Roman church, and there were Gentile Christians, those who were not Jewish in the Roman church. And there had become a controversy about who was more blessed, about who was better, and they started to argue amongst themselves in this church about basically who was God's favorite. Who was God's favorite? Was it the Jewish Christian or was it the Gentile Christian? And so Paul hears about this and Paul says, we've got to right this situation. We've got to get this church. It's too important. It was the most important city in the world at that time was the city of Rome. And Paul says, we can't let this keep going. We've got to write, I've got to write to this church. I've got to correct this argument that's going on so there can be unity established in the church again. So Paul in this book, in the book of Romans, lays out the gospel message in probably the clearest terms that we find it anywhere in the New Testament. He's laying out the good news about Jesus Christ. It's kind of more general than some of the other books. The other books he wrote were to a specific situation. He knew the people. He did not know these people. He, so he said, I'm basically going to give you the gospel. I'm basically going to give you the good news about Jesus in broad terms. So what we're going to do this morning to do this overview, we're going to go pretty much chapter by chapter. There's a few chapters that I'll kind of push together for time's sake. But I'm going to give you a verse or verses that illustrate the big theme of that chapter. I'm going to give you a couple of words that encapsulate that chapter. And hopefully when we're done, you'll have a big view of what the book of Romans is all about. But more importantly, hopefully when we're done, you'll have a big view of what the gospel is all about. Why is that important? Well, it's the good news that saves us. When we place our faith in the good news about Jesus Christ, then we're saved. But Paul warned us that there can be false gospels. There can be other gospels that are placed out there. And I see them all around us. There are other gospels that look, they look like they're the real thing, but they're not quite right. They're just a little bit off base. And pretty much Paul said, if somebody comes to you with another gospel, even if it's an angel from heaven, comes to you preaching another gospel, let them be eternally accursed. 
Let them be separated. Let them be cast out. That's how important it is to get the gospel message right. And so this morning, I want to teach you what the gospel message is. I want you to know it so you're able to recognize when another gospel comes up. I'll give you an example. Just jump to mind, the prosperity gospel. It's one of the gospels that's out there. It's basically saying, come to the Lord Jesus and he'll make you rich and everything will go well and he'll bless you. Now, it is true. If you come to Jesus, he will bless you. You will be blessed. But you might not necessarily be blessed in monetary things, in goods, in houses, and lands. That may not be how he chooses to bless you. He may choose to bless you that way, but that's no guarantee. But when our focus got off of Jesus in that gospel, which I believe is a false gospel, when it got off of Jesus and it got onto other things, it became another gospel. Not the pure gospel. Not what the Bible is presenting and promoting, another gospel. I don't know, you may have seen this week, Benny Hinn came out. He's been part of the prosperity gospel, and he came out and he basically said, I'm repenting because I got off base. Now, I don't know, guys, repentance, you, sometimes you, you have to stop and you have to watch and you have to make sure that fruit accompanies repentance, okay? We have to be wise in that. But what he said was good. We need to get back to God. We need to get back to Jesus. We need to get back to the true gospel, get our eyes off of things and back on God who is the one who gives us those blessings. What he said was good. So that's just an example of a false gospel that's out there. So I want to give you the real gospel this morning through the book of Romans. Let's start with Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, if I give it to you in two words, it is that wrath has been revealed. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. That's something we don't sing about a lot. That's something we don't talk about a lot because it's not a, pop, a popular subject. We're in America. We want to feel good all the time. We're good, everybody likes us, whatever we do is good, we justify ourselves, but what, what Paul is saying in the book of Romans is, look, God's wrath is coming against unrighteousness. Why is that? Well, it's because he's a holy God. He's a holy God, and sin cannot stand in his sight. He's a holy God. He's a holy God, he's a just God. If he's holy and if he's just, he has to judge unrighteousness. And so the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Let me give you the verses. Romans 1, 18 through 19 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. In other words, they looked around and they could see through nature, the, uh, this scripture goes on to talk about, they could see through nature who God was and what he was like, but they suppressed the natural truth about who God is so they could do their own thing. How many of you like to do your own thing? Can we be confessional this morning? I mean, I'm raising my hand because I'm being honest. I like to do my own thing. I like to have my plans. I like to go my way. I like to execute my plans. I don't like when my plans get thrown off. Puts me in a bad mood sometimes. I like to do my own thing. And that's, a, that's just very endemic to people. They, we, we always want to do our own thing. But God says, you know what? At the end of the day, I'm still God. If you don't go my way, you're going the wrong way. You have to choose my path. And so we suppress the truth about who God is in our own unrighteousness, doing the wrong thing. So what Romans 1 is saying and Paul is saying there is, look, Gentiles, those of you who are not Jews... Those of you who are the pagan nations that are out there, you've messed up. You've messed up. You've gone your own way. You've done your own thing. And God is revealing his wrath from heaven against you because you've done the wrong thing. 
you're under the wrath of God. Basically, you have made God into your enemy through your own unrighteousness. And then Paul gives us some evidence of that in Romans chapter 1. He has one whole paragraph on idolatry. How we've made symbols of things, we've made statues, and we've made images of things that, that are not God, but we've chosen to worship them. Idolatry is when we take our own image of God, our own thoughts of God, and we try to make that into our God. We have to take God as He really is. We have to take God as He really is, otherwise we fall into idolatry. idolatry. So the first paragraph is on idolatry. The second paragraph in that section, Paul talks about homosexuality. Oh, if you weren't paying attention, now I've got your attention back, okay? Hot-button topic in our culture today, just ask Drew Brees. Just, hey, I don't know if you saw what happened with him. If not, you can check that out. But Paul is saying, we had a natural knowledge of who God is, and we went in an unnatural way. And he said, not only are we doing that, but we have a natural knowledge of what sexuality is about and what family is about and what marriage is supposed to be. And then we go our own way on that as well. That's further evidence that we've rejected God. And then he's got another section where he talks about all kinds of sins that have followed. So basically, when we become idolatrous in our hearts, we go our own way, we do our own thing, and so the wrath of God abides against us. The wrath of God abides on us. And he's saying, look, you Gentile nations, you're messed up. Right off the bat, you're arguing who's better, Jews and Gentiles. Well, first thing you need to know, you Gentile nations, you're messed up. God's wrath is against you. So by this point, the Jewish believers are probably saying, that's right, you give it to them, Paul. That's right, we've been telling them that for a while. They haven't been listening, but you tell them, Paul, hey, we're exactly right on. But then Paul says, hey, wait a minute. You guys don't get cocky either. Don't get cocky, don't get too self-righteous, because you guys who were Jewish, you had the very words of God. You had the law of God. You were his specially chosen people. He gave you everything he could possibly give you. He delivered you from Egypt. He, he fed you with manna. He, he led you into the promised land. You had all these blessings, and then you sinned too. So don't get cocky because of the way the Gentiles have acted because you should have known better. In fact, it may be worse for you, I think Paul would say. Romans chapter 2, if I can give you two words on that, he says there's no favoritism with God. God doesn't have any favorites when it comes to this because all are under sin. Romans chapter 3 and verse 2 say, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 2 and verse 3 says, But do you suppose this, old man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, what Paul is saying is the Jews are in trouble, the Gentiles are in trouble. That's the whole world because in the Jewish way of thinking, there was nobody but Jew and Gentile. Paul is saying, look, everybody in this world is in trouble. You're all under God's wrath. You have all sinned. And so when we get to Romans chapter 3, that's what it's about. It's about everybody is in trouble. Everybody is under the wrath and judgment of God. Romans 3.23 is one of the first verses I learned as a kid. I learned it was when I was four years old. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. In our Bible Belt culture, kind of where we are down in the South, a lot of Bible, a lot of churches, churches on every corner, that sort of thing, we kind of have this idea that we're just kind of naturally Christians. You know, we're born and we're just naturally Christians, and if we're a pretty good old boy or a pretty good old girl, then we're saved and we're all right, and, and God just loves us. And we have a funeral, and somebody has absolutely no relationship with God, but we say, you know, they're up there, 
mowing Jesus' lawn, you know, it's stuff like that. It's kind of that idea. But that's not what Paul would say. No, 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 no. That is not how it is. You were born into sin. All. And I looked that up in the Greek, and you know what it means? All. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone has fallen short of his glory. Everyone is in trouble. And that's Paul's opening, basically his opening point in these first three chapters is, why don't y'all quit judging each other because you were all in the same boat to begin with? Jew, Gentile, no matter what, you were all in the same boat to begin with. You were all under the wrath of God. So then the next question is, what can we do if we're all messed up? If each and every one of us has fallen short of God's glory, if we're all messed up, then what can we do about that? Because that's a problem. When God's your problem, you really have a problem. And Paul is saying God is your problem. You have sinned against him. His wrath is against you. His judgment's against you. You're in trouble. You're messed up. You're doomed to be separated from him. And once we realize that's our problem, hopefully our next question is what can we do about it? Paul says, I got good news. You see, the beginning of the good news about Jesus is bad news, but then there's a pivoting point, and it turns into good news. It turns into hope. And that's what we get into when we get to Romans chapter 4. If we're all messed up, if we've messed up from the get-go, if we're all unrighteous, if we've all committed sins, you know, I hear people say, all sins are alike. That's not true. It's not true, to be honest with you. There's a sense in which all sins are alike, but there's a sense in which all sins are not alike. There are some sins that are more grievous against humanity. There are some sins that are more of an abomination against God. In that sense, all sins are not alike. But there is a way in which all sins are alike. If you never committed but one sin in your life, that'd be enough to separate you from God's holy presence. In that sense, they're all alike. You say, well, all I've ever done in my life, I've been really good. I've just told one little white lie one time. Okay, you're condemned too. You're condemned too. We're all unrighteous. But Paul says, since you're all unrighteous, let me give you an example of a guy who wasn't perfect. Go back to Genesis sometime and read the story of Abraham. We sing about him. Father had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. You remember that song? We sing about Father Abraham, but if you study about Father Abraham, he was sometimes a coward. Sometimes he did not protect his wife when he needed to. Sometimes he, he actually told lies. Abraham was not a perfect guy. He was not perfectly righteous. But there was one thing Abraham did that God loved. Abraham had faith. He was the father of faith. He stepped out in belief when God called him to step out. And so what Paul tells us is, yes, look to Abraham. Abraham was messed up. He was a Jew. But he was found righteous before God, not because he acted perfectly, but because he put his faith in God. And so that's the lesson of Romans chapter 4 is that faith is credited as righteousness. Romans chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the bad news is you've all messed up. I've messed up. We've all messed up. We all were born into sin and we've all lived that sin out and we all are not fit to stand in the presence of a holy God. So that's the bad news. The good news is that God will count your faith as righteousness. 
You see, it's impossible for us to be perfect because we're born into these broken, sinful human bodies. It's impossible for us to be perfect, but it is possible for us to have faith. And so that's the good news. That's the beginning of this good news in Romans chapter 4 is God will credit faith as righteousness. Paul goes on. If we put our faith in God through Jesus Christ, then in Romans chapter 5 he teaches we can have peace with God. I think that's why so many people struggle out there. They're into so many different things. They're hooked on drugs. They're hooked on pornography. They're cheating on their spouses. They're into homosexuality, whatever. They're into all these things. The reason is because they don't have peace with God. If you have peace with God, you don't have to have those things. If you have peace with God, then you can have peace in your life if you have peace with God. And so uh, Paul tells us in Romans 5, we can have peace with God. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, having been justified, justified means set right, made right, legally declared right. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's our faith in Jesus and the work that he did on the cross the empty tomb, that he was God in the flesh, that he never sinned, that he offered himself as a sacrifice for us, and his blood covers our sins. It's our faith in that that sets us right with God. And faith doesn't just mean, yeah, I mentally believe it. No, it means I put the full weight of my life on that. I rest in that. That's who I am. That's what defines me. I'm putting my life and my eternity, I'm risking it all on the belief that God is who he said he was in Jesus Christ. So we can have peace with God. We can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Well, then a question might naturally arise. If we're not justified by our works, if we're not justified by what we do, but we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ, doesn't that mean we get to do whatever we want to? What a carnal human question. What a carnal human question that is. Hey, I get to do what I want to now, right? Because I've been justified through faith. In Romans 6, Paul says, absolutely not. God forbid that that's the truth, that just because you're justified by faith, you live however you want to. Paul says instead, no, you are dead to sin. When you come to Jesus, you're dead to sin. Sin's not your master anymore. It's like it's calling, but you can't hear anymore because you're dead to it and you're alive to a new master that's Jesus Christ. You're alive to what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in you. So in Romans 6, Paul says, you're dead to sin. Romans 6, 1 through 4 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. New life. New creation. You shouldn't look. If you've come to Jesus, you should not look like you did before you came to Jesus. I'm not saying you get perfect overnight. That's not what I'm preaching here this morning. But man, there should be some marked change in your life. Y'all, if there's anything I'm sick of right now, it's people who claim to be Christian but don't live like it. If there's anything I'm sick of, if there's anything that drives me crazy right now, it's those who say, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect overnight. But I see people who are, they claim to be Christian, they're living in sin, and they just don't care. 
Boy, y'all quiet this morning. Seriously, guys, I'm a Christian. Woo, I'm going to come down and raise my hands and praise the Lord on Sunday morning. Woo! Glory to God. I'm going to go out and live like the devil the rest of the week. Either you didn't get what you thought you got or you need to go ahead and change. I don't know what's going on there. It's, it's almost more than my brain, my little brain can figure out, but something needs to change because Paul says we're dead to sin. You're dead to sin. Baptism, here's an here's a image of baptism. There's a symbol that's in baptism. The plane of the water actually symbolizes the earth. It's like you're being buried, you're being put below the earth, and you're being raised up to new life. That's the symbol of baptism that's in this immersion baptism that this is depicting here. You should be in new life. You should be a new creation in Jesus Christ. I don't get into this sin and religion, man. I don't get into this sin in Christianity. Again, I'm not saying that you're perfect overnight. Don't hear me saying that. But you're just like, I'm just going to keep right on sin. And Paul says, God forbid. God forbid there needs to be a change. The world is looking for something different in us. The world is looking for light. The world is looking for salt. The world is looking for hope. And we're giving them the same old thing over and over. And they say, man, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. I want no part of that. Let me go look at something else. I ain't trying to preach anybody out of your salvation this morning. I'm just saying if you're saved, you need to act like you're saved. You need to grow. You need to change. My goodness, y'all. Newness of life. Newness of life. So the question is, can we keep on sinning? Paul says, no. You can't keep on sinning. Change. Become a different person. Change. That's what Paul's saying. Why can't we? We have to have the power of the Holy Spirit, y'all. I know we have to have the Holy Spirit, but we've got to change. I know, man, some of y'all like it. You don't, you don't usually preach like that, but I, I'm just passionate about this right now. I'm just passionate about this right now. We've got to change. We've got to be made different. New life. Let me go on. Another question. Was the law of God pointless then? If it wasn't the law that could save us and faith was the only thing that could save us, was the law of God pointless? Paul says no. In Romans 7, it says the law taught us what our sin was. The law helped us to understand that we were sinners who needed Jesus so we could change. That's what Paul is saying there. It's not that the law was pointless, but he's saying in Christ, we're not under that law anymore. We're under the law of Christ. We're under the law of Jesus Christ. We're under his law. So we were condemned. We were all separated from God we all have this hope for a change in what Jesus Christ has done for us yes we really need to change yes the law had a point and then we get to Romans 8 Romans 8 some have said is the pinnacle of the Bible it's the pinnacle of the entire scripture it's the pinnacle of the New Testament it's the highest heights to which you can go I almost decided just to preach Romans 8 because it's such a wonderful wonderful chapter but Romans 8 shows what happens when we place our faith in Jesus. The first thing it tells us is when we place our faith in Jesus, when we're living for Jesus, when we're walking with him, we are free from condemnation. You ever seen a building that's just dilapidated, it's not being cared for in years, bricks are falling off of it, roof has fallen in. I mean, this thing is just falling apart. Somebody's going to come in and they're going to put a sign on it and they're going to say condemned. 
condemned. There's nothing good for the, in this anymore. There's nothing we can do to renovate it or improve it. It's just broken to the point that it just needs to be torn down. It just needs to be torn down. That's what condemnation is. It stands condemned. It stands ready to be destroyed. We're free from that. In Jesus, we're free from that, y'all. We don't stand like that anymore. Before Jesus, we were like a condemned building just waiting to be torn down. But after Jesus, we're free from that. We're free from condemnation. We have a hope and we have a future in Jesus Christ. We're free from condemnation. The second thing it tells us is we are free from our bodies of sin. Now that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because I'm thinking I'm still in my body and my body still wants me to sin and still has desires and things that go contrary to God. To God, How am I free from my body of sin? Well, I am being freed from my body of sin. I am being freed. I'm going to one day have a glorified body. I'm going to one day not have sinful desires anymore. I'm not going to have things that try to lead me astray. I'm going to be freed from our bodies of sin. And we're going to be made perfect as Jesus is perfect. And then he goes on, Paul goes on to say, we are part of a new creation that God is making. God is doing something new and we're part of it. It's not just me and you. It's not just those of us who are saved who are going to be a new creation. It's this entire world that's going to be a new creation. New heaven, new earth, everything is going to be made new. We're going to live in the glorious presence of Jesus Christ. We're being made, made part of a new creation. Romans chapter 8, verses 3, 38 through 39. This is a couple of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, for I am convinced. Paul says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news. We accept our sins. We repent of our sins. We decide to follow Jesus. We make that decision to follow him as the Lord of our life. And we're free from condemnation. We're free from these bodies of sin. And nothing can separate us. As long as we maintain that relationship with Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the good news. The good news is he will save us. The good news is if we allow him, he will keep us. We can be freed from sin and death. So the question is, if God is now working through faith in Jesus and not through the law, where does that leave the Jewish people? Because remember, that was the beginning of the story. Jews or Gentiles, who's justified God? Who's made right before God? And Romans chapter 9, verses through 11 tells that story. Three of the most hotly debated chapters in the Bible because it deals with the doctrine of election. An election is very controversial, but here's what it means. Why does God seem to favor some groups over other groups? Why does God seem to favor some people over other people? Is all Israel lost? And Paul says, no, Israel's not lost. Paul compares it to a wild olive tree. Paul says the olive tree, you can break branches off, but you can graft new branches in. And Paul says, look, those of you who are Gentiles, don't get too cocky. Yes, God broke off some of the branches of Israel, so you might be grafted in. But don't get too cocky about that. Don't get too caught up in feeling good about yourself. 
because if God broke some of the Jewish branches off because of unbelief, don't think he won't break you off too. Don't think he won't break you off too. So you have to keep in your belief of Jesus Christ. And know this, in the end, Romans 6.26 says, all Israel will be saved. All of Israel will be saved. So after Romans 11, which tells us eventually Israel is going to be brought in, Paul shifts gears. He's no longer explaining how we are saved. He begins to explain how we should live. Romans chapter 12 verses, uh, Romans chapter, uh, Romans 12 and 13, excuse me, is about living life in the Spirit. Yes, we're not saved by our works, but after we're saved, there are works that we have to do. We have to live a certain way. We, as I said, we've got to change. We've got to become more like Jesus Christ. So Romans 12 and 13 tells us about life in the Spirit. It says, submit your bodies as sacrifices. Use your spiritual gifts to bring unity. Live at peace with all men. Submit to the authorities. There are things, there are ways that we live now that we are kingdom people that we did not used to live like. Romans chapter 13, verses 13 through 14 says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. I'm a living sacrifice. I'm dead to Brent. I'm alive to Jesus Christ. I'm dead to, who, I'm dead to the ways that I want to live, and I'm alive to the ways that he wants to live. So that's what this section is about. Then it goes on. It says, so then when we seek to live life in the Spirit, living right, if we're not careful... We can turn into those people who make a big deal out of anything and everything that anyone we does don't agree with. Guys, are, I don't know if you've seen people like this, but if, if somebody dresses a little bit different, or if somebody eats a food that they don't like, or if somebody listens to a type of music they don't like, we get so nitpicky about each other. We get so nitpicky about every single thing somebody does that all we do is turn into Pharisees. We turn into Pharisees who are just sitting there trying to separate, trying to be better. I think some people have this thought of almost wanting to just be better than everybody else, a better Christian, a higher level, to go up one more long, rung on the ladder, have to get higher and higher so they can look down on everybody else. And Paul says, we can't do that. We can't do that. In Romans chapter 14 through 15, Paul teaches that not everything is an essential matter of faith. Not everything is an essential matter of faith. I remember I, the first time, and this was years ago in this church, it was a Sunday night service. And I remember I came in for the first time, I think, ever in my life, I came in and I was wearing my shirt tail untucked. Now, here I am, a teenage guy coming to church on a Sunday night. There wasn't a whole lot of that that went on at that point. Here I am, a guy coming in the church on a Sunday night, teenager, but I had my shirt tail untucked, and one guy came up to me almost immediately and said, you're supposed to have your shirt tail tucked in in church. And I was like, really? I'm going to have, I've got my Bible here. Where does it say that I have to have my shirt tail tucked in in church? Oh, yeah, you're supposed to have your shirt tail tucked in in church. That's the sort of thing that we can get into where we're nitpicking and where we're putting our opinion on everybody, and Paul is saying, look, no, that's not how it's supposed to work. 
That's not how it's supposed to work. In fact, what Romans 14 and 15 is saying is that we need to accept one another. We need to accept one another. We do have differences. We're not all going to be the same. We're not going to all like the same thing and do the same thing. Jesus as the core, the gospel as the core, living a Christian life, we can accept each other and we can love each other even though we're different. Romans chapter 14 and verse 4 says, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. We can be our own individual people as Christians. We don't have to all be the same. We don't have to all look the same, dress the same, think the same, act the same. We have to live for Jesus Christ, and we have to believe in what he has taught us, but we don't all have to be beholding to each other. Last chapter, chapter, chapter 16, is a long list of Paul commending his co-workers. Men, women, Jews, Gentiles, a variety of people, Paul is saying, have worked with me to make the gospel happen. Aren't you glad that as the family of God that we have a diverse group? Men can serve God, women can serve God, all different ethnicities can serve God. We have come into a new family. We have been made new. And so Paul says, even though we've got this big group of people who have been made new and they're working for, for the kingdom, God is the one alone who gets the glory. It's not to us, it's not to my name, it's not to your name, it's not any group's name that gets the glory. To God alone be the glory. Romans 16, 25 through 27 says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God, it has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. So that's the book of Romans in a nutshell. We were lost, but we have everybody, Jew, Gentile, whatever, you're lost, but you have an opportunity to be found in Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean, and we put our faith in him, it doesn't mean that we get to keep on sinning. It doesn't mean that we get to keep on living the same life that we've always lived. We have to change and we have to become more like him. There are ways that we live. And as we live those ways, we don't judge others. We don't try to separate ourselves or be better than everybody else. We love each other in a spirit of unity together as the church. And then we can come together as a family in this world, but also in the next. That's the gospel according to Romans. Now, as we travel this road, sometimes life gets hard. It's not easy. After you come to Jesus, it's not always easy. It's not always that everything is going to fall into place. All the dominoes are going to just fall down perfectly for you, that's not always going to be the way it is. There's suffering even in this life. As a Christian, how many, uh, those of you who know Jesus, how many of you have been through suffering since you've come to know Jesus? How many of you have had something tough happen since you've come to know Jesus? That's part of this life. We're never, never going to get away from it. But there's another one of my favorite verses in Romans. It's Romans chapter 8, 18, and I learned it as a child. I learned it from the King James Version. And it says this, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
No matter what we're going through, I, I know my grandmother, as she was passing, my mom's mom, as she was passing from this earth, and she was very sick, and she had cancer that was just racking her body, and she was in all sorts of pain, and this lady who had served God and was so humble and had loved her family so much, she was struggling so hard at the end. And I know my mom kind of said, I, I just don't understand why somebody who had such a good life and lived such a good life for Jesus, I don't understand why they're suffering this much. I don't know, and that's just a very human thought at the end. Why are they suffering this much? Why are they going through so much? Why, why is God allowing this? It seems like he would make an easy passing. He would make an easy transition. And one of the verses our family keyed on was this verse. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed within us. In other words, I don't care how bad it is right now. I don't care what you're going through, how much you're hurting, how much you're suffering. No matter how it is right now, there's going to be a glory that's going to make it all worthwhile. That's going to be better than all of that. That's going to be, we'll, we'll forget the things that have happened on this earth. The sub, I'm convinced that in heaven, in eternity, the things that cause us to suffer on this earth, those will just fade away. We'll not even think about them anymore. In the light and glory of who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives, I don't think those things will even be a thought in our minds. And so we've got a song that kind of reflects that this morning that we're going to end up with. And we've got something a little bit cool for you. My, my mom, who was worship director here and our piano player here for many, many years, is going to be our guest musician on this song. It's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful blend of old and new. But it talks about one day, one day the sufferings, one day the pains of this earth, one day the things that we go through, it will all pass away in the glory of who Jesus Christ is. I'm not going to ask that you stand on this one at the end when this song is over. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to pray together and we're going to be dismissed. But I just want you to listen to the words of this song. There's a part for you to sing in this as well, so I would ask that you join in. But let's talk about this one day. Through the gospel that Paul preached, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can one day see Jesus revealed in us in such a way that all the suffering is going to fade away and we're going to focus on his glory. Listen to this song with me this morning.
Jesus, is there a greater vision of grace? And in a moment we shall be changed on that day. And one day we'll be free, free indeed. Jesus, one day all this struggle will see. Amen. Give the Lord some praise this morning. Would you stand with us today? Heavenly Father, we look forward to when we all get to heaven. We, get forward, we look forward to that day when we know as we're known. 
We look forward to that day where we don't have to struggle anymore with health or with sin. But God, just with this world as it is, we thank you that we're going to be glorified, placed in a glorified body, that we're going to be able to glorify you for eternity. God, we thank you that the work that you've begun in us will come to a good end. So God, I pray as we leave this place today, we would think about who you are. We would think about what you're doing within us. God, we would think about how dependent we are on you and the work that Jesus did for us. But we look forward to that homecoming day. We look forward to that day where we're free from the bonds of this earth. And it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of the gospel. It's all because of what you've done within us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you. We praise you as we go out of this place. God, help us to tell somebody about Jesus with our words, with our lives. You're so good to us. Thank you for being a good God over us. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Guys, I love you. Even in day, on days when I use my teacher voice, I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. Have a great day. We'll see you later.